Well, good morning. We welcome you here today. Welcome all of our campuses. It's great to come together after we've had our times of worship and come together. I have three things before uh, we look into God's Word. Number one is tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock we will have our congregational prayer time. That's right before uh, the elders meeting and well, we're going to ask you to come to that. It's going to be here at the South Hills campus this time. In April, it'll be in Robinson, and then we'll rotate uh, throughout all the campuses. Six to seven uh, tomorrow evening, everyone uh, is invited. We would appreciate uh, you coming to that. Uh, also want to remind you, last week we did an interview with Ryan Middleton. I told you it was a short one. And so we were able to get with Ryan and Denise this week, he and his wife and have about an hour and a half interview so you can hear their full story. That's on the website, and you can listen to that at any time. And We'll actually be cutting that down into three, editing it into three podcasts later on, but you can listen to it at your convenience and hear his whole story. The other announcement I have is how many of you remember Rick Buter? You guys remember Rick Buter? He was here from 2011 to 2016. And uh, he's been away for a year and a half or two years, a church in Florida, and he will be rejoining our staff uh, on April the 1st. Yeah, very exciting. As we've been going through this process, we've been talking a lot about next generation and what do we need to do today to get ready for tomorrow? Uh, what do we need to do today to make sure that our kids are engaged and they're worshiping and they're learning and uh, when they uh, graduate from high school, they don't graduate from the church. And so Rick is coming back in to work with uh, Next Gen Ministries. He'll be doing a lot of the things, creative arts, worship, media services, connections uh, in that area, fifth and sixth grade, junior high, high school, and young adults. And of course, with, gifts, with uh, Rick's gift of worship, certainly he'll be uh, uh, a part of, of, of uh, helping us with that as well. So be praying for Rick and and Alex, as uh, they come, and their little uh, daughter, and uh, we are we're thankful for God's uh, blessing and bringing them back. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we uh, open uh, God's word and, and see what he has for us today. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we think of Psalm 103 that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. That's what we have come to do today. Bless your name, honor your name. With all that is within us, we can be so distracted and we can give you just, uh, just half sometimes. But Lord, all that is within us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, of his, not, not all his benefits. Lord, you give us so many things and you forgive our iniquities, the psalmist says. You heal our diseases. You redeem our life from the pit. We'll talk about that more today. Lord, you crown us with steadfast love and mercy, and you satisfy us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. You work righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. You made known your ways in the Old Testament to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And Father, we want to remind ourselves of what you have told us. You are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger, and you are abounding in steadfast love. So that's the God. You are the God that we are talking to, and you're the God we are worshiping, and you're the, you're the God we want to respond to. You're the God who sent us your word to teach us, to instruct us, to help us, uh, Lord, move from where we are to where you want us to be. 
So speak to us today as only you can do. Uh, we, are, um, we, we wait, Lord, uh, to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. So over the last months, we've been involved in a strategic planning uh, with a group out of Dallas, and many of you have been involved in that. I think 1,300 of you gave feedback, and from that feedback, uh, we've been working with some different goals and things. A lot of you were at the February 22nd meeting, and uh, many of you have been involved along the way. And the beauty of this time is it has allowed us, not being in a crisis situation, it's allowed us to really think who we are and, and where we're headed. We try to do that often, but this has allowed us to really zero in on that. And it's allowed us to think about and dream about what kind of church we would like to be. So dream with me a little bit. Some what ifs. So what if we were a church, we were a place where every seeker could come and find Jesus? Don't some of you know of people in your families or friends or work that you've been praying for? What if this was the place, this group of people was a place where seekers could come and find Jesus? Their life's transformed. Their new life begins. Now, when I say that, a lot of people say, hey, time out, that sounds like you're going to be a liberal church. Everyone's accepted. Everyone comes, and, uh, you know, we're going to water everything down and just accept everyone. I just want to make sure that is not what I'm saying. This, two weeks ago, our third daughter, Laura, had a, a little a baby boy, and it was exciting for us, really cool. And so... Lori was already there. I haven't seen Lori for about a long time. No, just kidding. She's, she's back now. Uh, uh, but grandkids take grandparents away a lot. And so, um, and so I went there. I left here, and I got to uh, the hospital, University of Tennessee Medical Center, uh, that night before the baby was born. And, and I was shocked to see on the doors of the University of Tennessee Medical Center these words, no sick people allowed here. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> At a hospital. No sick people allowed here. I'm kidding. It didn't have that. But that would be just a, you go to a hospital to get, to get well, right? To get, to get remedied. To get help. And it would be just as absurd if on the front of our doors... No sinners welcomed here. Because here a person can come and not stay in their sin. We don't condone sin. But here a person can come and meet the great physician. And their lives change. Wouldn't it be great if we were a place where seekers could find Jesus? Wouldn't it be great if we were a place? What if everyone here was serious about growing in their walk with Jesus? I mean, everyone here really serious about growing in their walk with Jesus, not as a hobby, not as something they kind of do on, on Sundays, not something they're playing with, but I mean, I mean full orb serious about following hard after Jesus. Think about how that would change teenagers and their schools. Think about how that would change young adults in their relationships. Think about what that would change with relationships before marriage. Think about how it would change marriages we wouldn't do a lot of marriage counseling here because couples would be serious about their walk with Jesus. And when two people are serious about their walk with Jesus, they can work things out. Think about what it would do in your homes with parenting, 
in your place of work. I mean, what, just think about it. What if we were really serious about developing as followers of Jesus Christ? And what if, what if we were a place where every person could come and find that community, that belonging that every heart desires, belonging and care? You come here and get connected. There are about 150 guys at the men's retreat this weekend who are going there. And, and, and what if they all got connected so that no one lived a solo life, so that everyone had someone who had their back, so that everyone had someone to be accountable to? What if this was a place of community and care? And what if we didn't even have to have a care ministry or care system that everyone just took care of each other? Because that's the natural thing to do. A place where seekers find Jesus, a place where people grow deeper, and a place of community and care. By the way, that's not a pipe dream. That's really not even what ifs. That's what the New Testament church should be, and that's what we're learning as we go through 1 John. Take your Bibles and turn there. John is telling us the church is not an institution. The church is not a building that you go to. The church is not an organization, but the church is the people. Whatever church you want to be, John says, here's the people you need to be. Remember that old thing when you were growing up? I don't know if you guys remember this. I always get this confused. I think it goes like this, right? Here's the, remember this? Here's the church. Eh, this takes us back, doesn't it? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door and see all the what? The people. That's the church. And John is saying, if you want to be a significant church, you have to be what? Committed people. First John is what we're studying. You can look on your sermon notes and you can see that John, in a time of history where the age expectancy was well below 50, John is in his 70s and 80s. He is an old man. He was in Jerusalem most of the time. Remember from the cross, Jesus said, John, take care of my mother. And church history says that's what he did until Mary died. About 68 AD, he and a lot of others left Jerusalem and went to Ephesus. Ephesus was a key Christian city in that day. That day, Asia Minor, today southwestern Turkey. There, John, in the next 10 years, at 85 to 95, around those years, he writes four books. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and he writes the Revelation. And he writes from Ephesus, the Revelation's from Patmos, but Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, are from Ephesus, and he writes to the surrounding churches. The surrounding churches would have been probably the seven churches that we read about in Revelation. Now, when John writes, he always has a specific reason for writing. We see that in his gospel. We see it here in his first letter. And we see the five reasons. I have them listed here. Number one, to encourage Christian belonging, because that's what we do in the church. We belong to each other. We'll see that again. We care for each other. We have each other's back. That's what called community, belonging, fellowship, initiated by God, always, purchased by Christ, empowered by the Spirit, but always expressed among people. We also see that John wrote to help believers experience true joy. Man, don't you want that? Not circumstantial joy, but true joy that, that, that is always there under our circumstances, whatever those are. To avoid 
falling into patterns of sin. We'll see some of that today. To guard believers from false teaching. A lot of false teaching going on in that day, as in ours. And to allow believers to know with certainty that they are children of God. 1 John 5.13 is a verse you need to memorize and apply. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you will what? Know you have eternal life. Not guess, not think, not wish, not wait till the end and see how it all works out, but you will know today, right now, that you have eternal life. And nothing is more important than that. Nothing is more important than knowing that you have eternal life. So today we want to look at John chapter 1, uh, or sorry, chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. I want to start by reading uh, verses 12 through 14. And you'll see in these verses that John addresses three groups of people, little children, fathers, and young men. Now John is speaking generically, so he's speaking to the whole church, and he's not speaking in chronological age groups but he's speaking to people in the stage of their spiritual journey. That makes sense? We would know that because little children is the word for little born ones. So John's not writing this to babies. They can't read, and they're not going to understand what he says. So he's writing it to those little children would be those who are just believers. They're brand new in their Christian walk. Fathers would be those who are more mature in their Christian walk. And young men would be those who are in the battle. Now, all of us are in the battle, and sometimes we show more maturity than other times. So it kind of relates to all of us, but John hits these three spiritual stages of the Christian life. Does that make sense? Okay, let's read through it. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, new Christians, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Remember when you came to Christ? Couldn't get over that, right? My sins are forgiven. I don't have that over me anymore. Jesus died for my sins. One of the first things we learn in our Christian walk, right? I'm writing to you, little children. Those of you who just are Christians, you know that your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you, have, you know him who is from the beginning. I mean, you have a relation. You have a personal relationship with the living God. You know him. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You are in the battle. You know what it's like to fight against temptation. You're not giving in to temptation. You are fighting, struggling, to grow in your Christian walk. And then he kind of repeats it, basically says the same thing to, for emphasis. I'm writing to you children because you know the Father. Not only, not only are you, do, you, do you know about forgiveness, but you also have a relationship with the Father. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men because you're strong. John's encouraging the group. He's writing to believers here. You are strong. You are In the Word, the Word of God abides in you. Not only do you just read it and check off the list, I read the Bible today, but it abides in you. You're letting it absorb into your heart, and you're living it out, and you have overcome the evil one. You are in the battle. Now, to those people, John has a command that he's going to tell them in verses 7 through 11. So let's start there and just work our way through these verses. First, John starts with the word beloved, all right? So we know right from the beginning that John is speaking specifically to believers in the gathering of the church. Sometimes when the church, when the church gathers, we know this. When the church gathers, here's what we know. Some people are very serious about their walk with Christ. Other people, not so serious about their walk with Christ. 
Some people are true believers. Some people, not true believers. They're here, but not true believers. That's what John's been telling us, right? You say you're in the light, but you walk in the darkness. The truth isn't in you. So John is addressing this letter to the whole church. But here he says, I'm going to zero in on just the believers in the church. So let's make sure we understand what that means. Get a blank screen here. Remember, John to this point has told us in chapter 1 that those who are true believers have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. When we see the word blood, it means death. And so by the death of Jesus, by the death, burial, and the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, we have been cleansed. Our hearts have been cleansed of sin. The old is gone. The new has come. We're not dirtied by sin anymore. Another word for that would be righteous. We are made right before God. And so when God sees us, he does not see our sin or our past or our future sin. He sees our righteousness that has been paid for by Jesus, the one who cleansed us. He also said that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We saw this the last time. And the word propitiation means a gift given to appease anger. And a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people will use other words because they don't like that because a gift given to appease anger, we've got to go back and say what? God is wrathful. God's wrath. Last time we saw that all of God's attributes, his love, his mercy, his goodness, his justice, which would demonstrate the penalty on sin, his wrath, all work together. And so we gave this illustration. God's wrath. We cannot get around it. Old Testament, New Testament. You cannot say the Old Testament is the Old Testament of God's wrath and the New Testament is God's love. If you're reading scripture, you can't say that. You see God's wrath. And again, God's wrath is God's penalty on sin. He hates sin. He said sin deserves death. And God's wrath is poured out on all, Romans 3, all the ungodly who, who suppress the truth in love. So on your own, if you're going to be on your own and you want to do it your way and you want to go independent on this thing, you are going to experience at the end of the day, the old prophet said in the day of the Lord, when it's too late, his wrath is being poured down, you're going to experience God's wrath. There's one word for that that Jesus talks about a lot. He doesn't blink an eye. He doesn't apologize for it. He's four letters. It's hell. Eternity separated from God. But God says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be separated from me forever. You don't have to experience my wrath. I love you so much that I still have to dispense justice because I can't go back on my justice, but I love you so much that I sent my son to die on a cross, to take it all. And so when you trust in Jesus, the wrath of God is intercepted by Jesus. Jesus was the propitiation or the appeasement, the gift of appeasement, right, for God's wrath. So you don't have to stay over here and, and experience God's wrath. You do not have to stay over here. You can know without any doubt that you have eternal life because you've trusted in the only one who gave his life as an appeasement to God. And you can live a life pleasing to him, not perfect, and you know, as John told us, that you will always have a what? 
Yeah, I can't read that either. Advocate. <laughs> An advocate. That's what that means. An advocate. So you will always have, Jesus will always be your advocate. And so here's the cool thing. I mean, just think about this. I'm going to sin. I'm not going to live a perfect life. The penalty of sin is gone. The propensity to sin, the inclination of sin is still there. So I sin. Jesus is my advocate. 1 John 1, 9, I go and I confess my sins. And Jesus, on my behalf, who died for me, who paid the penalty for my sin, goes to the Father and says, you can't punish him for that sin. I paid the penalty for it. I took care of it on the cross. I took on your wrath for that sin. Well, that's great news, isn't it? And it makes sin pretty serious. Because when we sin, and when we think about what Jesus has done, he died on a cross. He took on God's wrath for us. Will we sin? Yeah. And we always have an advocate. So John says, believers, I'm just zeroing in on believers. I'm writing to you no new commandment. I'm writing to you an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. So John said, I'm going to tell you something you need to know, and it's not going to be anything new. You've heard it from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, right? But then what's John say? What does John say? At the same time, it is a what? It is a new commandment I'm writing to you, which is true in him. That's Jesus. And since you're a believer, it's true in you because the Holy Spirit lives in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We'll, we'll get back to that in a second. So, John, what is it? Are you giving us an old commandment or a new commandment? He said it's not, an, it's, not an, it's not a new one. It's an old one. But then you told us it's a new one. Is it an old one or a new one? And John would say, yeah, it is. It's both old and new. We'll get to that in a second, but before we, before we do, let's figure out what the commandment is, because John really doesn't tell us in that first part. He just says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. That's an old commandment. Look at verse uh, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Talking to believers... When you're in the church, you're a true believer, but you hate your, your brother, your brother in Christ, or brother or sister generic. And hate doesn't mean you murder them or you want them dead. It, it means that, but it means also you neglect them or you reject them or you ignore them. Then you're still in the darkness. You're, walking, you're, you're acting like you're not a believer. You are, because I'm writing this section to believers, but you're acting like you're not. Whoever loves his brother, abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So if you love your brother, you're in the light, and you can see the obstacles ahead of you. When you're in the darkness, the obstacles are there. I love the word stumbling. It's a, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that means a stick used to set a trap. And so there's a stick, and you would hide, and you would have it, and when an animal came, you would move the stick, and the animal would fall in the track. It came to mean an obstacle in your way. When you walk in the light, you can see those. There's no obstacle in your way. So let's think about this. John's saying, I'm writing this commandment to you. That's not a new one, but it is a new one. And 
Now he says, you don't hate each other, but you love each other. And so the commandment is what? Love one another. Now John knows his audience, has already read some of his gospel, and in his gospel he explained the words of Jesus, or he recorded the words of Jesus. And in John chapter 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you what? Like you mean it. Thank you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love. Ooh, just as I have loved you. Think of that. I took on the wrath of God for you. I did that for you. So you're to love one another. Now watch this one. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wait a second. What about the doctrine stuff? Well, yeah. What about the programs we have? Okay. What about all the stuff we got going on? Oh, Jesus says, well, I'm not saying those are bad. They're good. But the main criteria that people will know that you really follow me, that you love me, that you're sold out to me, that you're full-orbed in, is if you what? If you love one another, then they'll, they will know that you are my disciples. They're going to know that you're my disciples. Okay, so John says, this is a new commandment, but you've heard this before. This is way back in the Old Testament. And it is, isn't it? You work through the Old Testament, and you're going to read verses like this in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor, Jesus repeats this in the New Testament, as yourself, I am the Lord your God. And so the Lord came in flesh and said the same thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you're in the Old Testament, let me just uh, put this out here because this is so critical. When you're reading the Old Testament and you're in the Old Testament law, you're in one of three strands of the law. All the Old Testament is inspired by God. All the Old Testament needs to be read. All the Old Testament needs to be applied. We need to look at the principles and see how they transfer into the New Testament. But when you're in the Old Testament, you're looking at one of three strands of the law. So let's just think about this. First, there is the civil law of the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, God is writing to the nation of Israel, and the civil law, when you read things in Deuteronomy or Exodus or Leviticus, they're explanations of how you interact with each other. So if I would borrow your ox, right? Is it ox or oxen? It's plural is oxen, right? Okay, I only want one. I'm going to borrow your ox. I borrow it, and I'm working with that thing, and it dies. Now, what's my responsibility to you? That's part of the civil law. Other things in the civil law that you do and you don't do. 
Now, the civil law was for the nation of Israel. Today, the church is made up of all kinds of nations, right? And every nation has its civil laws. And so the civil law transferred into great principles there. God loves us so much that he would tell us what to do with an ox that dies when I borrow it from you. That translates or transfers into the instruction for the church, right? Still a Still history, or still God's plan for the nation of Israel. I'm not saying that's gone. But right now, the church in the New Testament, the instruction for the church. That makes sense? Civil law in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament. You guys with me? The second strand is ceremonial. And ceremonial law is how do you approach God? What do you do to approach God? Um, Leviticus, for instance, tells us right from the very beginning, here are the sacrifices you can take to approach God. God says the penalty of sin is death, but I'm not, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to put that penalty on you. For this period of time in the Old Testament, I'm going to allow animal sacrifices, and here are the animals you can bring. Here are the animals you can't bring. By the way, in the civil law, there are also all the dietary laws as well because God cared about their health. Here we are in the ceremonial law. Here's how you approach God. And here's what you can sacrifice. Here's what you can't sacrifice. And God, you, and, and here's, what, here's what the tabernacle is going to look like. Here's what the Holy of Holies is going to look like. Here's the priesthood, the, the ones who are going to be mediators between you and God. Well, in the New Testament, who fulfills that? Not a trick question. The answer is always Jesus, right? Jesus fulfills that. He came and fulfilled everything. He is the, the one-time-for-all-time sacrifice. Those Old Testament sacrifices were just getting us ready. We were kind of in the darkness then, right? We knew we needed to do it, but we're in the darkness. And then Jesus came and the light shined. He is the one-time-for-all-time sacrifice. Then you have civil law, ceremonial law, and then you have the moral law. And the moral law is found throughout the Old Testament... But it's summarized in what? The Ten Commandments. That's the summary of it. The Ten Commandments, the first four are vertical, my relationship with God. The last six are horizontal, my relationship with others. And every, every commandment summarized in the Ten Commandments, every commandment is repeated in the New Testament except for one and that is, remember this, the fourth one, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Hebrews tells us the reason that's not repeated is the purpose in the Old Testament for the Sabbath was to take that seventh day and rest from your work while everyone else was working, while all, like Chick-fil-A, right? While all, those other, while all those other people were making money, you're saying, I'm dependent on God. I'm going to rest my body. But more than that, I'm going to rest my soul. I'm depending on God. Well, in the New Testament, who's our Sabbath rest all the time? Who allows us to cease from our works? The answer again is Jesus. Hebrews says he is our Sabbath rest. But Jesus drills down on all the other ones. In fact, they get even, they get even more serious. Jesus said, remember, you're not supposed to kill someone in the Old Testament, but I tell you, when you what? Hate your brother. You're killing him or her in your heart. Jesus said, not commit adultery. Remember that one? But I tell you, 
when you lust after another person. You're committing adultery in your heart. So Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and just drills them down. The moral law continues through the Gospels, through all the letters, and through Revelation. And so John says, I'm giving you a new commandment, but it's not really a new commandment. It's an old commandment. It's always been around. All the Old Testament, the spirit of the Old Testament, the spirit of the law, civil, ceremonial, moral. It was about loving each other, caring for each other, having others' best interest ahead of yours. It was always about loving one another because that's how people know you belong to me if you love one another. Okay, I don't know about you, but every time I do a sermon that talks about love, it just kind of feels, it just feels a little fuzzy, right? What is it? It's in every song. It gets overused. We talk about falling in love. We use it all these ways. What in the world is the love that John's talking about, that Paul talks about, that Jesus talks about? What, is it, what does it mean, practically, rubber meets the road? I'm a simple person. What, what do you need me to do with this? Love one another. Okay, three things. Let's, let's look at the definition. Let's look at an example. And let, let's look at how this is produced. And then we're going we're gonna to uh, send off to the other campuses to take communion in just a second. All right. First of all, a definition of love. If I said to you, if someone came to you and said, hey, this thing love sounds kind of fuzzy, take me somewhere in the Bible because you believe in the Bible, take me somewhere in the Bible to show me what love really is. Where would you go? I know you're thinking 1 Corinthians <laughs> chapter 13, because that's what you had read in your wedding, right? 1 Corinthians 13. And here's, what, here's, here's the definition of love. If you want a definition of love, here's 13 verses that explains what love is. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I, if I talk and it sounds really good and I talk a good game but I don't really love people, it's just a bunch of noise. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge and if I have all faith so to remove mountains. I have faith so that mountains are moved but I have not love, not worth a thing. If I give away all I have, I got a lot of money, I got a lot of resources, by the way, compared to the world, all of us in here would fall in that category, right? I give it all away. Give it all away. I even sacrifice my body to be burned as a martyr. This is a tough one, right? But I don't have love. I gain nothing. And then, love is patient. Okay, that's convicting. Maybe we just ought to stop right there. Love is kind. Love does not envy, doesn't want what other people has. It's not doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude. It does not insist on having its own way, it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, never gives up. It never gives up. You might be in a marriage situation right now and it's tough, but but the kind of love God gives you, it, it doesn't give up. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never ends. 
Think about that. Love never ends. We just get a little glimpse of what it might feel like, what it might look like now. But in heaven, perfect forever. There's going to be love forever. We're going to experience it from the Lord. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. Tongues are going to cease. Knowledge will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, when I grew up spiritually, I put away childish things, Paul says. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But what the greatest is what? What's the trump card? Love. Love one another. I challenge you this week to take 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love, God's type of love, and go through it and prayerfully determine how you're doing in your patience, in your kindness, in your pride, assisting on your own way, irritable or resentful. God, how am I doing? And then when God shows you you need to repent of something, you Use 1 John 1, 9, right? You confess your sins, and he is faith, and, God, and Jesus is your advocate. I already paid for that sin. You confessed it. That's great. Now let's move on. That's great. That's a great step of the journey. It's a growth process. Okay, there's the definition. Secondly, then, let's look at the second uh, part of love, the example of love. <coughs> and here we go to two passages in John. The first one is that passage we know so well, one of the first ones you probably memorized, for God so loved the world. Okay, God, you so loved the world. How, did you, how are you going to show me you did that? Well, I'm going to give you my son. I'm going to send Jesus to take my wrath on the cross for you. That's how much I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave. And just think there, love is active. Love doesn't just talk a good game. Love is in the game. Love is active. Another passage, uh, John uh, 15, 12 through 14. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus, how did you love us? Jesus said, well, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus said, I loved you so much that I took on the wrath of God. I I died for you, and so you should use that as an example as you love other people. As you prayerfully consider 1 Corinthians 13, just think about that. Are you demonstrating that active love of giving yourself, self-sacrificing love? One more. The production of love. So I think we can conclude, or I know I can conclude in my life, we can conclude from Scripture that love is not natural, is it? I don't naturally By the way, when we talk about loving one another, it doesn't mean you have to be best friends with each other. All right? You demonstrate love to one another regardless of who a person is, not neglecting them, nothing hurtful toward them, not ignoring them. But in community, we love each other. And that's supernatural. That does not come naturally. Naturally, we are sinners. We are prideful. We want things our way in our time. And we're upset when it doesn't happen. But something supernatural happens. Romans chapter 5. Remember this verse. Jot this verse down. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, says this. God's 
love has been poured into our hearts. Think about that. God's love, God's love, not ours, God's, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I love that verse. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us and lives within us. And so if God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us, something supernatural should be taking place. And so here's the production, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and again, it's not fruits, but this is what the Spirit, the one Spirit gives. What's the first one? Love. And then joy. And then peace. And then patience. This is what happens supernaturally when God's love is poured out on the heart through the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, as an application, make the list, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Pray through this. Lord, how am I doing? I really want to know. Examine my heart. I'm, I'm open. I want, you're going to be honest with me, I know. And I want to be honest with myself. How am I really doing on this thing called love that is defined back in 1 Corinthians 13? I know that's active, not just something to talk about. How am I doing with patience and peace and joy? I mean, do I get worked up about every circumstance going on in my life and lose the joy that you've given? Then I'm not, I'm not submitting to the Spirit's work in my heart. Go through the list and allow God to work in and on your heart. So John says, I got a commandment for you. It's not a new one. It's an old one, but it's a new one. Love one another. And throughout scripture, we're told to love one another just as Jesus loved us. And so in communion, we're reminded of that, aren't we? That Jesus went to the cross just for us. In communion, this is the reminder of what Jesus did. Not to be taken flippantly, not to simply, you know, bread and cup, but to reflect on two things. One, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. You took God's wrath on yourself so I could be free. You died so I could live. Thank you for that. And secondly, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, examine your heart. So this is the time when you say, Lord, I'm holding the bread and the cup. This reminds me of all that Jesus did. I want, to, I want to live for you. I want to demonstrate my love for you. Now, let me hear from you and examine my heart. 